Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Marianne's guest is Nico Stubler, who is an activist currently working with Direct Action Everywhere in Colombia, South America. A scholar who recently completed a master's in animal studies at NYU and the author of a recent article in the Journal for Critical Animal Studies describing and advocating for the Liberation Pledge. You may find this conversation challenging and you may not agree with all of it, but I'm pretty sure you'll find it thoughtful and find Nico to be delightful and as passionate an activist as you are likely to meet. I I totally agree. I'm excited about this interview. And on this week's Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with Nico. And as always, if you are a Flock member, you'll get the link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast goes up, where you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you are a Flock member, thank you. Please join us for our first Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on, you guessed it, the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we focus on how to be better activists and how to take care of ourselves. And we speak to some inspiring guests, many of whom are recent podcast guests. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you're a member of the Flock, you can also set up one-on-ones to meet with me as well to discuss your activism or your veganism or anything about your shared passion with us to change the world for animals. To set up an appointment with me, just email Jen at jen at ourhenhouse.org. We also have a special announcement this week from Compassion Consortium, which you may have heard about from Victoria Moran, who is one of its founders and one of our favorite people. Compassion Consortium is a non-sectarian and interfaith religious center that offers spiritual guidance, support, and fellowship to vegans, vegetarians, animal rights activists, animal lovers, and all humans who care about and advocate for animals and the planet. Each Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, they conduct an online service, which you can sign up for at CompassionConsortium.org slash Sunday hyphen service. Each service includes immersive spiritual practices such as musical reflection, meditation, prayer, and loving kindness, as well as a conversation with a special guest. And on June 27th, as part of their month-long Pride celebration, the special guest will be another favorite person of ours, Jane Velez-Mitchell, the founder and content editor of Jane Unchained, a multi-platform social media news outlet that produces original video content on animal rights and on the vegan lifestyle. Jane's vegan and animal rights credentials are pretty much too numerous to mention, but we'll just say she's amazing and fabulous. And I'm sure this conversation will be deeply meaningful. A lot of cool stuff going on. And you were recently in a very cool place. Your favorite, I I don't want to say it's your favorite place in the universe, but it might be, and that's New York City. Tell us what happened. Well, as our longtime listeners know, I lived there for the greater part of 20 years, and you, you lived there for the greater part of a lot longer than that. And it's still hard to, to sort of adjust to not being there. And so I try and soak it up whenever and however I can. And so I was uh, waiting, waiting, waiting to till I felt like it was safe enough to go with the vaccinations and all of that. And the hotel prices were still really low. So I, I did wind up going and I squished in as many meetings and as many restaurant experiences as I possibly could. And I feel, I feel inflated. 
we don't really care about the meetings. Tell us about the restaurants. Okay. <laughs> so I, I went to some oldies, but goodies, Francia and Hangawi, which are sister I restaurants. Love Hangawi. I mean, I love Francia too, but oh, Hangawi is mm. so charming. It's a yes. very traditional Korean experience. And that's mm-hmm. the restaurant where they have the tables are like on close to the floor and it looks like everybody's kneeling, but you actually, there are actually wells underneath the table. <laughs> so you actually can sit there, but it yes. looks like you're kneeling. So it feels very Korean. Also, you take your shoes off when you go in. And I, every time I go there, I manage to wear socks that have holes in the toes. It's just the way it works it, out. It, it really and, happens uh, to me too. Well, like, yeah. what is that? Why don't well, we, time, why don't we think I'm going to Hangawi? Put I some good socks it. on. I thought it, I thought it, I thought it. I got there. I took my shoes off. I was so happy because my toes were intact. Ate dinner, put my shoes back on, got back to my hotel, took my shoes off, and the heel was completely ripped through. So that's, uh, yeah, I've moved on. Basically, I've moved on from a a hole in my toe to a hole in my heel. Aside from that, it was so, it was just great, you know. I was it with two friends who are you know New Yorkers and vegans, longtime vegans, and everyone was like, "Why don't we go to this place more often?" And it is, it's just great. It's not that usual to find a totally veganized Korean menu. It was nice to see an old friend of mine from the West Coast here on the East Coast, which is Veggie Grill which I, of course, ate at in, in LA and in Portland, but this was the first one on the East Coast on 23rd Street. So that was nice. And there's a new restaurant open that I tried down in Chelsea called Willow Vegan Bistro, and it's opened by the same folks who run Beyond Sushi, and it's they call it elevated comfort food. And it was phenomenal. Like every single bite of everything I had was like, the best kind of, uh, you, you know, like, uh, fancy comfort food experience, which well, I like what, like, what did you order? So I was with someone and we had Caesar salad and we had, um, cauliflower wings and we had, um, mac and cheese and mm. we had, uh, you know, just uh, meatball sub and like it was it was really yeah that good. all does sound very comforting yeah it was good but I think another thing that was a great surprise food wise uh, you know I had to meet a friend in a specific area of the city for a variety of logistical reasons we didn't have much time so I basically like looked at a map and chose a place called Bombay Sandwich Company and it was not far from where you where you used to work at the court. It was on I think twenty eighth and or twenty seventh and seventh, and it was just like an Indian sort of maybe a mix of Indian and American food. And but it was like pretty much all in made into a sandwich. I think that's where the American comes in. But it was like chana masala sandwich and just <laughs> like mango chili Beyond Burger sandwich. Like it was kind of a blend. And it was epic. Like, ugh, ugh, it was so good. If you could only somehow go back in time and have that place exist, it was really... And I also went to the Museum of Illusions, which is one of my favorite museums because I like to play and lose myself. And it, you know, it's like optical so illusions. So you were near 11 Madison Park, but you didn't get there. I mean, it's a little beyond my scope. I I, yeah. I, I think it's like $500 for a person for dinner, something like oh, that. Oh, I've, yeah. I've heard upwards of a thousand. Like I, I oh, yeah. <laughs> if, I mean, How you know, good can the food be? I kind of want to joke uh, on the podcast right now and say, if someone's listening to this and they want to take me, then please do. But I said that a couple of times on the podcast, like jokingly. And then people were like, oh, I'll take you. So whatever you're talking about. And I feel guilty, but then I do it anyway. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not going to say it, but I will think it. 11 Madison going. I kind of think you just said it. This is a little. Uh, All right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. I do remember, perhaps you remember this. I, I mentioned this uh, a couple of times, but like way back, maybe in 2010 or 11, I mentioned on the show that I was having problems with my skin and there was like this, like all natural vegan, like not a dermatologist, but someone who specialized in skin, who it wasn't a doctor, but I, I really don't know where this is going. I oh, swear everybody, I don't and- know. She sent me these vegan cruelty-free products because I said on the show that it was having like skin issues. Have, it's so kind. That was really, really kind. Yeah, this really is. Anyway, um, before we get to the interview, we have another super kind thing, which is a really cool, kind author. I'm trying really hard here to bring in a transition. It's 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 going awkwardly, isn't it? That's okay. Yeah, we have this great reading by an author, Justin Barker. Isn't it, wouldn't it be cool to be an animal rights person? Your last name is Barker. Well, Bob Barker's last name is Barker. It is indeed. So Justin is going to be reading from his new book, Bear Boy, the true story of a boy, two bears and the fight to be free. He is giving us a short reading of it before we get to our full interview. I love this book. Justin Barker was 13 years old when he launched Citizens Lobbying for Animals in Zoos and was subsequently named one of 20 teens who will change the world in Teen People magazine and featured in National Geographic and Animal Planet, NBC, CBS, for standing up for Brutus and Ursula, two black bears living in horrific conditions in a California zoo. Although he has gone on to a successful career as a director and producer, this young adult book harkens back to those early days of activism and how it changed him and aims to inspire a new generation of activists to question the role of zoos and imagine a kinder, more inclusive world. So here is Justin Barker reading from his new book, Bear Boy. Hi, I'm Justin Barker a longtime listener of the Our Hen House podcast and author of the new young adult book, Bear Boy, the true story of a boy, two bears, and the fight to be free. When I was 13, I discovered Ingrid Newkirk's Kids Can Save the Animals, 101 Easy Things to Do at a Used Bookstore, a book that would change my life. This excerpt is from chapter one. The chapter began... Zoos started long ago as menageries, collections of exotic wild animals kept by kings and emperors. Showmen decided the public would pay to see fierce tigers and weird monkeys, so city zoos were built. My heart sunk at the idea of animals being snatched from their families in Africa and brought to terrible places like the valley. As I read on about the problems with zoos, a horrible memory came flooding back from second grade. Our teacher told us our class was adopting Penny, a black-footed cat from the zoo. I became obsessed with Penny and would stare at her photo that was pinned next to the thermometer that indicated how much my class had raised for her adoption fee. The teacher promised us that once we'd raised enough money, we would go to the zoo to visit her. Twenty of us put 25 cents from our lunch money in a jar every day for three weeks until we raised $75. My favorite time of day was science, when we learned all about African animals, and we spent the entire week leading up to our field trip learning about black-footed cats. It was a warm spring day when our trip to the zoo finally arrived. We stepped off the yellow bus in a single file. I was mortified to be wearing the exact same neon green shirt as the rest of the kids in my class. 
They read Zoo Crew. I tuned out our tour guide as we wandered through the zoo, passing by the many animals. Blah, 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 hyenas, zebras, yada, yada. I just wanted to meet Penny. Then, beyond the filthy hippo tank, past the puke green duck pond, the moment I had been waiting for arrived. The paint peeled off a sign that hung over the walkway. Small felines of Africa. We moved past a long line of cages until the tour guide stopped our group. This is Penny, she said. She's the black-footed cat you all raised money for. We had learned her species was nocturnal and slept most of the day. I had imagined she'd be in a big sandy pit with well-shaded shadows for her midday naps. I pushed to the front of the group and spotted her in a concrete and metal cage that was only a little bigger than my closet. It was filled with dead tree branches, but I knew from our study she couldn't even climb. Her eyes were wide. She looked like a scared house cat trying to escape the sun and our glares. If she weren't locked in that hell, she would live on the sandy terrain of the Namibian savannas. My palms began to sweat from my tight grip on the four-foot-tall fence that stood between us and her enclosure. One of the kids shook the fence to taunt her. She jumped and cowered near the closed door of the back of her cage. Everyone, including the adults, laughed at her reaction. Everyone, that is, except me. I felt so sad for Penny, such disappointment, such shock that anyone thought these conditions were okay. And the fact that she had just become the butt of a bully's cruel joke, tears began to roll down my face. Look at Justine, squilled the same kid who had just taunted Penny, adding and then emphasizing the E at the end of my name. He turned everyone's attention to me. What are you crying about? He asked loudly without an ounce of curiosity in his voice. Six years later, at the start of summer, reading the truth about zoos made me realize I was right to feel sad for Penny that day. Those kids and adults didn't get it, and there was something wrong with staring and laughing at animals locked in cages thousands of miles from their natural homes. I also realized that I wasn't so different than Penny, that I too was trapped in a place I didn't want to be, enclosed by gender stereotypes and surrounded by bullies with no end in sight. The front door opened. My dad was home early from work. I sat there with my book. He looked surprised I hadn't moved since breakfast and that I wasn't in front of the TV. Dad, I blurted out, finally ready to answer the question he had asked me in the car on the way to the bookstore just the day before. I know what I'm going to do this summer. Wow, that totally made me want to read the rest of the book. And I bet a lot of you feel the same way or know somebody who you think is going to love this book. So it is available wherever books are sold as of June 22nd. And you can find it and find out more about it at www.bearboy.org. You might also think about requesting Bear Boy at your local bookstore or library. I always think that's a great thing to do. So now let's get to the interview. Totally. I've been looking forward to this. You were very uh, taken by this interview, I think. We discussed it quite a lot after you finished interviewing Nico. Nico Stubler is an activist and a scholar. They completed their MA in Animal Studies from New York University, and they have led grassroots campaigns in Colombia, New York, and California. They focus on activism and scholarship that address animal agriculture's de- devastating harms with the urgency they demand. And they are currently working on a forthcoming book, Ban Meat, a pragmatic approach for ending animal ag. They are active on Instagram at Nico.Stubler, that's S-T-U-B-L-E-R. 
And Nico also loves connecting there with animal advocates around the world. They will be joining Marianne right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our hen house, Nico. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Marianne. Uh, it really is a, a pleasure and an honor. I'm a long-time listener of Our Hen House. I've listened to every single episode and uh, also a proud flock member. During my Peace Corps service, for about the first year, I was living in a very, very isolated community and Our Hen House was my, was my vegan community. So on my walks to and from work every day, I would listen to episodes. And this show gave me a tremendous background of the movement and, and provided me community at a time that I really needed it. So yeah, in many ways, it feels like I'm coming full circle being on the show. And I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be here today. Oh, that makes me so happy, Nico. Like, I can't tell you, like, that is exactly why we do this. And so it makes me so happy that we were at least a comfort to you in those times. And and hopefully, given all of the wonderful guests we've had on that, that you learned a bit too, that thank you for saying that. I love having a, a someone who was once my student on. It makes me feel so happy. Um, and I'm so happy that you're here because you're going to share with us today sometimes something I think a lot of people feel is controversial and aren't sure whether it's a good idea and but are very very intrigued by it and maybe don't know enough about it so first of all let's start out by just briefly describing what the liberation pledge is great yeah so the liberation pledge is consists of three parts the first part is essentially to be vegan so I imagine for most of our listeners it's it's a pretty easy first step the second part is to not eat around other people who are not eating vegan so that is to not eat in the presence of of people consuming animal products and then the third part is to help encourage and spread more and more people to take the pledge so that's a kind of concise description, but I just kind of wondering, what does this look like? Are you swearing to leave the room if other people are eating eating animals or or just not sit at the same table? I've heard some people talk about it that way. So what does it actually look like? What would you consider the bottom line? Yeah, so there is a lot of flexibility in how people decide to practice it, and I think that helps to make it more accessible. But the bottom line is to not be at the same table as another person who is eating animal-based products. So when I practice it, and I've been practicing it for a few years now, I always have these conversations ahead of time. And so uh, my goal is not to exclude myself from eating with others, uh, but it's to invite others to eat vegan with me. So what does that messaging sound like? What what do you say to people? I mean, like, let's imagine a scenario. Some friend who you just met calls you up. They're being really friendly, and they suggest having dinner. What do you say? 
Yeah. And so for all of my activism, I always think it's best to be very direct and empathetic at the same time. So I'll say thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I've taken what's called the liberation pledge. And that means that I, I don't eat around other people eating animal products. But I would love to, to grab a bite with you. So if you'd be up for grabbing some tasty vegan food with me, uh, I've got some good ideas. If you'd rather not, then maybe we can just go grab a drink. And have you have you actually walked through that exact scenario and tell me how it how it turned out? Yeah, so I've, I've done it many many times in a variety of different countries around the world, and it goes almost always much better than I expect. And that's a very common sentiment around a lot of activists who have taken the pledge, is that in our heads we always make it out to be so much more uh, dramatic and confrontational than it is. But usually when I say that, people will say, like, of course, like, I didn't, I didn't realize that was that important to you. Or, of course, like, what makes you happy makes me happy. Uh, and then we agree to, to go grab some good vegan food. There have been a few times, I can count on one hand, uh, the number of times that people have said, actually, let's just, let's just go get drinks or not responded. And in each of those, those scenarios where people opted to not eat with me uh, or did not respond, I think the, the conversation, the relationship would not have gone well otherwise, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. This is a total side issue, but I'm just kind of curious because you just mentioned that you've done this all over the world and you've, you've lived in a number of different places. Is the United States like the hardest place to pull this off? Are people in other countries nicer, nicer about this sort of thing? Yeah, so <laughs> I think there, there are pros and cons. The United States, we have a lot of options. So basically, for most places that I've been, uh, I lived, uh, there are always a lot of good options and like a diversity of food to eat. Whereas in other countries, that's not always the case. But in other countries, yes, people tend to be much more open, actually, uh, and excited about trying something new. Yeah, we're not a very mellow people, are we? All right. So here's another scenario. You're going to your grandma's. I mean, I don't know anything about your personal grandma. So just like assume like a grandma. And she always makes a point of fixing you a nice vegan meal. She's very sympathetic. But, you know, she has her recipes and she loves making them for the rest of the family. Do you go to the family dinner? I would not. No, I would not go to the family dinner. And so I think, I, so I feel that the, the benefits of taking this hard line are twofold. Because I think when you eat in the presence of other people consuming animal products, there are two, two approaches you can take, two, two paths. Uh, one is to normalize what they're doing. So at a deep subconscious level to, to make excuses and say it's okay for whatever reason. And I firmly believe that it's not okay, that it's not okay to, to consume animals. The other option is to not normalize it and to sit through that meal enduring psychological distress, uh, watching your loved ones consume violence and not knowing how to engage with them. So in, those, in these kind of situations, I think it's a lose-lose. Either we're compromising our own ethic and our own ideals at a very deep level, at like a very profound level, or we're compromising our mental health. So in, the, in that situation, and I have, I've done many, many Thanksgivings now uh, entirely vegan with a lot of family members who are not vegan. And it usually, it does um, put more work on my shoulders because it often entails me looking up recipes and, and helping people to figure out what we're going to cook together. But by the end, it's, it turns out to be a lot more fun. It really brings us together. And in the process, it shows other folk how to cook vegan uh, and how easy it is to eat vegan. Now, do you just have a remarkably easygoing family or does it, do there end up being two Thanksgiving dinners with, with you with the vegans or the, 
the willing to be vegan for one day. And and, and I am going to get into rationales here. I just want to start with the practical stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so how, it, you know, not everybody's family is really accommodating, but, you know, most people have a few people who might be accommodating. Does it split the family? Yeah, so I, I'm very privileged in the sense of how open my family is. The way that I generally conceptualize it is that I'm not, I'm not requiring everybody around me to go vegan for me to communicate with them and hang out with them. I'm just asking for them to eat vegan in my presence. And I think it really is a pretty basic ask. And especially when I, when I frame it as something that matters to me this much, and like it, it causes me to stress and I, and I can't be in these kind of situations when I'm watching it happen. I've been very impressed and, and grateful for how open those around me have been. Yeah, I do think that you're lucky and other people might have to deal with more difficult situations. Let me just go through one more scenario and then I promise we will get into uh, all of the rationales because you have many rationales for this in addition to the ones you just mentioned, but but work. So let's say I'll make it as hard as I can, I can think of. You're being given an award at work and you know a number of people are getting awards. You're one of them and there's a big banquet. Do you just not go? Yeah, so I think work is the most complicated dimension. Uh, but no, I, I would absolutely go, but I would not eat. And so, so you would be eating, still be eating with people who are eating animals, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would. I would be with them, but I would not be eating. Okay. And so that's, I guess, that's kind of the get out of jail free card. But there have been a, a few times where I have attended events and everyone else ate, and I just ate beforehand. Well, what if there was a vegan meal available? I would not. I would not take it. So you don't eat at it. You don't necessarily leave a table where animals are being eaten, but you don't eat something. You you sit there, not consuming. So that's kind of like the furthest you would go. Exactly. And then when folk ask me why I'm not eating, I would politely say that I've made this commitment to not eat around other people who are eating animals. Mm-hmm. All right. So you talked about one of the reasons to do the pledge and to support doing the pledge is is kind of for yourself, that it it, it, re, it removes some of that discomfort that I think almost everybody listening to this feels when they're around people who are eating animals and you either have to bury it or get angry or... But there are many reasons you, you believe in doing this besides that. And you support it because you believe it's effective activism. And just just go into some of the reasons of, of why you do think this this has the right effect on people. Awesome. Yeah, I, I for me, it has brought me tremendous personal benefits and actually made my interactions and my relationships a lot healthier. But that for me, that's incidental. The, the, the real purpose that I, I practice the pledge and advocate for the pledge is because I think it's a, an incredibly effective way for us as individuals to target carnism. So I think most of your listeners or many of your listeners might already be familiar with the term carnism, but it was a term coined by Melanie Joy, I think in 2011. And carnism is essentially the ideology that normalizes consuming animals and eating animals and animal products. It really kind of flips the idea of veganism on its head. And it shows that like these are both ideologies of what we're choosing to eat. They're, they're moral frameworks and we're being conditioned by them one way or the other. And so I believe that the Liberation Pledge is an effective way to denormalize carnism and to eventually, to, to really promote animal liberation as a result. I believe that carnism, this, uh, this ideology of uh, that it's normal and acceptable to, to consume non-human animals, is built upon 
its ability to seem normal. It's built upon its ability to be invisible and under the surface. And so I believe that the most important or one of the most important ways for us to target and deconstruct carnism is to denormalize it. Uh, and I believe that the Liberation Pledge is an effective way to do so. I conceptualize veganism as a basic moral requirement, but I don't conceptualize plain veganism as a form of activism. Just in the same way as if folk tell me that they don't eat humans, I don't congratulate that. I see that as a very basic level of moral decency. And I feel the same way about veganism. And, and a part about veganism, I think, is that I don't think eating vegan poses a, a threat or, or really poses a significant threat to the system of carnism to denormalize it, right? So for example, me eating my lunch by myself in my room, I can eat animal products or I can eat vegan. And I don't think either one of them really makes a big difference. I think the big power and the, the, the potential of veganism to affect change is through showing other people <laughs> that we're eating vegan and why we're eating vegan and encouraging other people to eat vegan. And I, I think, unfortunately, that eating vegan, like I call it passive veganism, when you're around folk eating animal products, uh, is counterproductive in the sense that it, it serves to instill in others that what they're doing is a personal choice uh, and that they're allowed to be making it, right? So it, it frames eating animals or not eating animals as a personal choice. Uh, and I don't believe it's a morally neutral personal choice. I believe consuming, demanding and consuming animal products is an act of violence and that we should not, we should treat it as such. And, and just to interrupt you for a second, but I think I and most other people listening to this would totally agree. I think most people think that, of our listeners think that veganism is a moral imperative. It's it's not a, a personal choice and, and and that it's not activism in and of itself. Oh yeah. Awesome. So I think so that's kind of the, the basic premise. And then the idea for me is that what the liberation pledge does is it activates this this animal liberation ethic. It really it turns the, the theory behind veganism into praxis and enables us to affect, affect the change and target the system that we're hoping to target. And so I, I think in, in the paper I argue or I explain that it does this through two ways in particular. The first is through challenging the edibility of animals, and the second is through restoring what Carol Adams refers to as the absent referent. So I can talk about those both briefly. I think the fundamental issue is that society, that carnism, conceptualizes non-human animals and their products as edible. And in that conceptualization, in that framing, at a very deep level, it tells us, uh, it conditions us to view animals as usable and abusable. So it's a helpful example to, to think about this in the human context, right? We're very, as a society, there's a huge stigma against eating other humans, against, cannibal, against cannibalism. And the reason that a variety of scholars have, have posed this is because conceptualizing other humans as edible fundamentally compromises our relationship with other humans. Um, because what it does is it, it teaches us to, to view other humans as usable, as abusable at the most basic level. Uh, and so when we conceptualize non-humans as edible, it does the same thing. So I, I don't think we should conceptualize, regardless of how an animal is killed or dies, I don't think we should, con should conceptualize animals as edible. And the Liberation Pledge 
does that in effect. It, it, it refuses to allow other people or to normalize the edibility of non-human animals. So it basically, it, as you say, it's praxis. It takes into practice this feeling that we all practice, this feeling that we all have that animals are not edible and, and animals are not just here for, for us. It, it takes that into beyond a personal decision and, and the public decision. Is that, is that right? Yeah. You saw, she summed it up maybe better than I did. Yeah, exactly. So we all, I mean, our listeners or your listeners already recognize and already conceptualize non-humans as inedible. I mean, as vegans, that's kind of the, the basic framework for, for us not eating non-humans. But what the Liberation Pledge does is it refuses to allow other people to normalize that. So it takes a very direct stand in saying that I this is not okay, this is my belief and what like what society is doing is wrong. Okay, one of the things that you say in the article, I'm just going to give you a brief quote. This notable sacrifice makes it clear to others that the practitioner is driven by a pursuit of justice, not personal pleasure, and consequently forces them to contend with the action as a form of activism rather than as a morally neutral quirk. Now, I, I think that's right. That's how they should respond. But I, it, we've already made it clear that you have remarkably good people in your life. <laughs> I'm not sure that would actually happen. I think most people, oh, this is such an interesting point. We're all wondering how to get people out of their complacency and, and thinking about this. And I'm not sure that this would do it. If I feel like a lot of people would just act the way they normally do to anybody who is just being vegan only it would be even more so. They, they would think we were self-righteous, judgmental, fundamentally wrong, and they wouldn't go deeper. But you're thinking, you're thinking this forces them to go deeper. It, 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 are you, do you really think that at the extent that it would make it worth it for people for whom this would be hard? Are you so sure? <laughs> so I, I, I do think so. And I, one, one quick point, I do know that my path with the Liberation Pledge has been perhaps easier than a lot of other people for a variety of reasons. But I do, I'm friends with, with many, many people uh, who, who do not live in such supportive networks and have also found the Liberation Pledge to really ultimately benefit them. But, but to answer your, your specific question, uh, I think that a lot of people, when, when they see you eating vegan around them not eating animals, in their head, a subconscious level that they're, they're what they're doing is they're justifying with what their action because everybody nobody cognitive dissonance is so uncomfortable uh and so when they see you eating vegan a lot of people will justify it as oh they're doing that for health reasons they're doing that for other environmental reasons etc they also i mean if i can interrupt you for a second they also frequently take it just you're eating vegan as an act of self-righteousness right and i and and I, but I think that that I think that's okay, and I think that's the point that needs to be made. But I think it can be made in a way that's more effective than when it's made at the dinner table, right? I think that when people are consuming animal products, is the absolute worst time to have a fruitful conversation with them about veganism, because every single bite they're in they're basically doing the action that you're telling them is morally wrong. Uh, whereas I think the absolute best time to talk to people about veganism is when they're eating vegan food. And every single bite they're taking, they're affirming that what they're doing is right and that they're a moral good person. So all these conversations, I don't like to have this conversation with people as they're eating animal products. 
I, yeah, I, actually, Carol Adams is also, uh, she was the first person who I heard saying that, like, that's the worst time for activism. And it was such a relief because it's so obviously true. Yeah, and yet, I, I, that is what it tends to come up, isn't it? It is. And, it, and I think it's the worst time. I think it's, it's stressful for all parties. Whereas what the Liberation Pledge does is uh, as a Liberation Pledge or a pledger or an activist, I'm not trying to limit my interactions with other people. I'm trying to increase my interactions over vegan food. So I'm always I'm, I'm inviting folks to eat vegan with me and then to have this conversation with them over vegan food or if not to have this conversation with them hours before the meal, before these kind of sentiments and this energy comes up. So how many people have taken the pledge and how many do you think it would need to make this really powerful? I mean, maybe you already think it's very powerful on an individual level, but to have a to have a movement effect. Yeah. So the Liberation Pledge is still in its very early stages. There, there's a website, liberationpledge.com, where folk can formally take the pledge. And at this time, at this point, 6,000 people um, across six continents have taken it. And at this early stage, what I really think the Liberation Pledge has been doing is providing proof of concept because all these people have been taking it, benefiting from it, and then sharing it with their friends. And that's I think that's why it helps to explain the slow and steady growth. But ultimately, it's going to require a, a significant uh, increase. And just to take a quick step back, part of the theory or the inspiration for the Liberation Pledge came mm-hmm. from a campaign that happened in China, a campaign against foot binding. So when, it, when the campaign was begun, uh, 99% of people in that society were binding feet, right? So even at a higher percentage of, of families were binding feet than um, are eating animals. And so what the, they, they created this pledge, this system, where families would pledge to one, not bind the feet of their daughters, and two, not allow their sons to marry daughters with bound feet. It took a little while to get started. But in 30 years, it more or less completely eliminated the practice. It totally transformed the culture. And so it's, it's that pledge that this idea of the Liberation Pledge is built upon. And so I think it's normal for it to start slow. But ultimately, what will be required is, is concentrated growth, ideally in, in geographic centers. Because the, the, more, the more often individuals run into people who have taken the pledge, the more normal taking the pledge becomes and the less normal failing to do so becomes. Yeah, I mean, not not to discount that story, which is a very, very powerful story, but they were just not letting their sons marry these poor women. They they weren't not having dinner with them, which is a lot more complicated. So yeah, I I mean, that's not to put it down. I'm just saying this is having an effect with this is not going to be that easy. All right. Many people in responding to this think that we shouldn't put people off and this will wreck relationships. And instead we should actually cultivate their relationship, cultivate their respect for us personally in order to foment change. Clearly you think the opposite. Can you just explain why either, you know, I can see your rationale, but why isn't that also a good rationale? Is there more than one way to reach people? So, yeah, I'll, I'll, two two parts. I do think there's more than one way to, to be an activist in the space. And I think we need an all of the above approach, unfortunately, and maybe fortunately as well. But I, I do support a lot of different forms of activism. Well, that's the Our Hen House motto. And I know okay. you're a listener, so I'll just put that out there. <laughs> but I, I do believe that the Liberation Pledge is a particularly pragmatic and effective way to do so. 
Uh, and I guess, as I said before, I think it's a lot more effective to be having these conversations with folk away from the table. And then, as you mentioned, I guess that the question about compromising relationships. And so from, from my personal experience and from the experience of a lot of other folk, there's a Liberation Pledge Facebook group where, where people are, are pretty consistently sharing their own stories. And that's where I get a lot of my, I guess, specific examples of other individuals. But I've, I found it to really strengthen a lot of my, my relationships and be a solve for past relationships, past relational tension. Because I think what it does is by putting your foot in the sand at one point, I, I think it really helps to, to create a new future forward. Whereas if you, if you just continue to stay in the, in the path of normalizing what other folk are doing, what other folk are eating, and normalizing that practice, I think it, it serves to continue to perpetuate it. Whereas being very clear with loved ones about how it makes you feel and that you're not going to do this anymore. I think at, at the very initial part, it can create a little bit of a hiccup, maybe. But over time, uh, I've seen it actually in, in my family, in my familial relationships, to strengthen them in general. You know, I've always told people that in doing vegan advocacy, your family might be the absolute worst place to start. And it, it sometimes disappoints me how much energy people focus on on their families, converting their families when, you know, they could be going out in the world and talking to people who are actually much more open. And, and also there's that whole family dynamic thing. We all play roles within our families. And sometimes those roles give us power. Sometimes those roles disempower us and, and make it unlikely that anybody is going to listen to us. But you actually, this approach clearly would encourage people to spend a lot of emotional energy on families because that's, who you often eat with. Why expend that emotional energy there when when outreach to others will, will almost certainly be more profitable? Yeah, so I, I actually think that it requires less emotional energy because the amount of emotional energy it takes to be around people eating animal products is is very, very high. It's very stressful going in and it's stressful for all parties, right? Like Uncle Bob, I shouldn't use that example because I, I have an Uncle Bob, <laughs> um, but but Uncle Uncle Joe, um, who's very passionate about eating animals, is going into this Thanksgiving already knowing that there's going to be a confrontation, and everybody is going into this this these meals knowing that there's underlying tension and wanting to avoid it. And I think that the Liberation Pledge allows you to, to get that tension out of the way in advance over an email, and then be able to have a much more pleasant and, and peaceful interactions with family members. But I do, I want to say I completely agree that generally speaking, I think it's it's much more effective to be focusing our attention on, on those not closest to us in our activism. But I also believe that taking the pledge facilitates that because the more you're around people eating animal products, again, it's either, it's either going to be causing you emotional distress or at a subconscious level, you're going to be normalizing it. You're going to be, you're not going to be seeing the violence around you as, as a viscerally as I think we should be seeing it. And so I believe this, this, this practice every once in a while when we meet with family members actually empowers our activists away from the family, activism the family. You believe that the pledge, uh, this is where it gets, I think, harder for people to, to take in. You believe that the pledge is not only effective activism, but it's a moral imperative. As, you know, as we all believe that veganism is a moral imperative, it's not, you know, it's not just something you're doing. It's something you must do in order to be a good person. Can you explain why the pledge would actually be an extension of that and also be a moral imperative? Yeah, thanks, Marianne. Uh, so I think I view it as a moral imperative to speak out against violence. 
And I include dietary violence in that, uh, especially when we can, I mean, I, and I don't need to consider, uh, convince anybody to listen to this, to the show about that. So I don't, I don't inherently believe that taking the pledge is morally required, but I think every single time we eat around people eating animals, we need to be speaking out. So the title of my article is called Silence Abets Violence. And I believe that act of silence, that act of normalization around other people's dietary violence is what's enabling that violence to continue. Right. So I personally believe that the liberation pledge is more effective than having arguments with people over food. But I think either one for me is morally acceptable. I think what's morally unacceptable is to eat around people without directly challenging what they're doing. So why is this where the line is? Okay, not eating with them is better than having an argument with them just because you believe it's more effective. So that's a rationale. But but what about completely severing relationships with them? I don't know, to take a more dramatic action. How do you know where to draw the line? Like if people were sexually abusing children, we wouldn't stay friends with them except when they are actually, except for leaving the room when they are actually abusing children. We would sever our relationships with them. Where do you draw the line about how much is required? Yeah, thanks, Marianne. So I think ethics requires a lot of us. I think living ethically and morally requires is, is a very, very high bar. And I, I really don't think it's possible in a lot of ways. And I think we're all imperfect and doing the best we can. That said, I think our very our act of being around people and watching them eat animals it's serving to enable and normalize their practice. It's giving them like moral and social license to be continuing it if we're, if we're silent about it. And I think that's the big problem. Uh, whereas if they're doing it in their own free time, you're not giving them social license. And I think for me, that's where that, dis- that distinction lies. Okay, that's a, that's, I think that's a subtle distinction. But I guess it's a lot more difficult to disapprove of what somebody's doing when it isn't so universally accepted. Uh, and so lines have to be, you know, decisions have to be made, lines have to be drawn. And I, I respect the fact that that's what you're doing. What what about the cultural argument? I mean, particularly as white people from an affluent Western society, uh, not that everybody listening to this is a white person or from an affluent Western society, but if you are, there's a good argument that we should not be like calling people out based on our beliefs if they are from a different culture. And particularly for an animal activist to refuse to sit down and have a meal with someone from a marginalized community, seems like it could really be sending the wrong message. What do you do about those kinds of situations? Yeah, so this is, maybe we'll talk about this in the bonus segment later, but my animal ethic really reified and crystallized my first few months of service as a Peace Corps volunteer. So I had been a volunteer, or I had been a, I had been vegan for, for a little over four years at that point, but it was not my central passion in life. And I moved to Nicaragua, and I was living in a very, very small community, about 2,000 people. The word vegetarian did not exist in their lexicon, let alone vegan, all right? <laughs> they, they received Wi-Fi the month before I arrived. And so it was in this context that I was deciding if I was going to maintain my veganism around, cult, around community members or if I was going to accept animal products when they were offered me. And the big crux of my, my issue, my mental struggles, was whether my veganism was a form of cultural imperialism and if it was problematic for me to do so. And so I really dug in my first few months of service into the literature, both about animal agriculture, but also about ideas of cultural relativity, cultural imperialism, 
and multiculturalism. And it was in that time that I became more impassioned than ever about animal advocacy, about animal liberation, uh, and decided to maintain my veganism throughout service. So that's a, that's a, I guess that's kind of how I got here. But in terms of, I, I think that there are ways to do the pledge in ethical and appropriate ways. And I think there are ways to do it in unethical and inappropriate ways. And so I don't think the pledge by itself is either like good or bad, but I think we as individuals can <laughs> uh, do so in better or worse ways. So I, I, the short answer is I don't think that culture is an excuse for our abuse and use of non-human animals, just as I don't believe culture is an excuse for sexism or heterosexism or other forms of oppression. So that's kind of the basic level. And then I believe that there are ways to, to get around that and interact with other communities and other cultures in good ways, empathetic ways that invite people in rather than push people away. And do you feel that that's what happened or was it a mixed uh, reception or did people not even know? How did it go? Yeah. So for me, it was it was incredibly empowering. Um, I, the community that I lived in was largely vegetarian by default, just because animal products are, or animal flesh is more expensive uh, and animals were only eaten for special occasions. And so my first few months, I didn't get very many invites to eat with people. And I didn't really understand why. I didn't think about it. But as soon as folk in the community realized that I was going to only be eating vegan, I was starting to get invites from from all the houses because ah. before before in their heads are like, oh my gosh, we have to kill our only pig if we invite Nico over to eat. But as soon as they realized that they could feed me the exact the, the cheapest food available, people started inviting me in, and uh, it actually really facilitated my social integration. Yeah, that's a really nice story. All right, so I want to get into another a different privilege issue, however, and that's privilege amongst activisms, this is much easier for some people to do than others. And so we've, we talked about whether it's a moral imperative, we talked about whether it's effective activism, but let's discuss whether it's just too hard. And I, I know that you've said that you've had many fulfilling experiences, but you are a very outgoing, extroverted person from what I can see. And for some people, they might be shy or just fragile in some ways, or very lonely. And they might comply with the pledge by keeping to themselves, which would not make them better activists and might damage them. And also, like, this could lead to confrontation. It's obvious that that you've had very good experiences, but we all know that this could be perceived in an antagonistic way. And for some people, this would be very, very hard. Why would this be a moral imperative for them? Yeah. So I, I, again, I, I believe that it's a moral imperative to be vegan. And I think it's a moral imperative to speak out against violence. I recognize how challenging it is. So, so the way that I frame it in the paper is that for folk who would not be willing to eat around people eating dogs or eating cats, I would like to, for them to feel comfortable to hold themselves to the same standard of doing the same around people eating cows or pigs or fishes. I think the bottom line is that I, I do recognize that this is hard, but I also think that activism is hard. I think that for the, the very notion of activism, being active is to be challenging. It, I guess the way that I conceptual it, conceptualize it is to be challenging challenging norms, challenging systems. And that's, that's very uncomfortable and it's difficult to do. And I, I think that we should be holding our activism to that same standard. I think that if, if what we're doing is easy and not challenging, I, I don't 
know if it's that that big of a form of activism. Well, are there ways for people to take care of themselves while doing this or for other, I I know you have, there are Facebook pages and probably other social media in which people gain support. What are the ways that people could, if they're thinking of doing this, that they could seek out to help them do it in a way that, that benefits them rather than harms them? I'm just really worried about people. I mean, animal activists are so isolated as it is and- and I worry about people becoming more isolated if they do this, if they yeah. do it in the wrong way. Thanks, Marianne. I think, so I do think the Facebook group is an incredibly valuable resource because there are people that have been taking the pledge for years or just days. And and variety of folk can be interacting and finding that kind of community there. So I I believe that there, there are a number of ways. I, I tend to do everything in extremes and, and not necessarily extremes, but binaries. So I either do something or I don't do something. I went vegan on one day and do a lot of my things. Like I took the pledge on one day and I've been doing it since. I know a lot of people, it's it's different. Like a lot of people, it's actually a lot more sustainable and practicable to be doing things little by little. So maybe it could be beneficial for certain folk to, to explore taking the pledge with, with certain groups and, and begin expanding from that. But yeah, I think ultimately it's like we... I, I do have tremendous compassion for basically for all, I mean, for everybody, but for, for all of our vegans living in society, it's, it's not easy. It's incredibly difficult and challenging. But again, I don't, I don't think we're doing this to, for the easy way out. I think we're, we're doing this to, um, <laughs> to, to affect deep systemic social change. And so I guess one thing I'll note is that I have found a lot of people who have taken the pledge have found themselves increasing the number of vegan friendships that they have. In part by necessity, but in part when that ethic becomes that instilled, they just start looking out for more and more vegans to be around and to interact with. And I think that's a, a big plus is that the Liberation Pledge, on the one hand, you can be encouraging those around you to, to join you being vegan, but then also it gives you that little extra push to, to, be, to be going out there and, and connecting with other vegans that you haven't yet met. Yeah. And I mean, that is always a good thing. It does bring me back to a question that we kind of went to before, but I'm just going to revisit it. Is there a worry that it will become like a little cultish that all the only people we'll talk to will be us? Because <laughs> it is important that we live in the real world. Yeah, I do think I do think that is a risk. And I think it's, it's a risk of, of all forms, I guess, of just normal veganism in general. And I think it's something that like to definitely have in mind. Again, how I frame it is that I view, I view the Liberation Pledge not as a way for me to exclude myself from others, but as a way to invite others to eat vegan with me. So, so really to be, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a process of expanding the vegan table rather than just isolating myself to the vegan table. Uh, and it gives me impetus to be doing that on a regular basis. Is there like a, a guidebook to how to take the Liberation Pledge, like a book of advice on, uh, on what people can do? So I'm actually planning on on creating like a, a little op-ed series of question and answers and, and some videos. So at this point, I think the best resource remains that Facebook group. But if, if anybody is interested or remotely interested in, in dipping their toes in, I would I would sincerely be happy to chat with anybody. Um, it's obviously something I feel very passionate about and strongly about uh, and would be happy until these other resources are out to, to help people. Because we are, again, we're in the very early stages. So it's like, 
people who are vegan 60, 70 years ago in a lot of Western countries, it was like so much more difficult than it is today. Uh, and I think that's kind of where the liberation pledge is right now in some ways. It's very, very new and novel. Uh, but the early adopters, those of us who are most passionate about challenging carnism, about challenging animal agriculture, uh, I think it's a, an, an incredibly powerful and effective tool for us to be able to take up. So I, I promised you that I would give you an opportunity to cover all the issues that I didn't get to. So what are some of the benefits and criticisms of the Liberation Pledge that we haven't discussed? And, and how do you address them before I let you go? Yeah, I list seven specific critiques in the article and then respond to them each in turn. And, and you have brought up most of them, actually. So thank you. Another critique is arguing that there are, there are a lot of folk or there, there are folk in society who don't have the opportunity or privilege to practice the liberation pledge. Uh, so that, those could be minors like living with parents who don't have the opportunity to choose the foods that they're, they're consuming, incarcerated folk who, who don't have great options in terms of the food that they're, they're eating in prison, etc. And so I, I do definitely honor that and agree with that and do not think that um, these individuals are morally responsible. Well, those are those are blocks in the way of being vegan itself, but you think they are also blocks in the way of adopting the Liberation Pledge. Right. Yeah. I think if, I think if you can't be vegan yourself, then there, you, you also obviously can't be taking a Liberation Pledge. Yes. Otherwise, you would have to leave the table every time you started eating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work. Um, so, yeah. So, I think... So these exceptions, I, I honor them and I think they're important, but I don't think that there are excuses or rationales for folk who have the opportunity and have the ability to take the pledge to not take the pledge. You had mentioned that you would be happy to talk to people or chat with them on, on email or whatever. So tell people where they can find you, but also tell them where they can find the paper because that's probably the best, the best place to start and uh, where they can find this Facebook group. Great. Yeah. So the Facebook group is called the Liberation Pledge Support Group. And if you just type that into to Facebook, it'll pop right up. I'm active on Facebook, but I'm much more present on Instagram. And so my handle is nico.stubler, my first and last name. And that's, that's probably the easiest way for us to connect. The Liberation Pledge currently is linked in my bio. There's a link in my Instagram bio to that paper, but also it's... It was published by the, the Journal for Critical Animal Studies, so it can be found there. It can also be found on my academia.edu page under Nico Stubler. One, one final point is that I'd just like to, in, to invite listeners to, to maybe mull this idea over for a little bit and think about it. I know the first time that I heard about the Liberation Pledge, I was skeptical. Uh, and in general, the first time I hear about any idea, I, I'm generally very skeptical. I think that the Liberation Pledge is incredibly challenging and it breaks a lot of norms, but I, I think its power lies in that. And so, yeah, I would just invite uh, listeners maybe to, to, to think on it for a little bit before tossing the idea away. And I do think that, well, hopefully this, this, this conversation gives you a nice introduction. Uh, I do think the article explains it in a, much, in a very organized and, and concise way. Yeah, no, the, ar the article goes much more in depth. I, I strongly encourage everybody to check it out. And thank you so much for writing it, Nico. And thank you so much for joining us today on our Hen House. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Marianne. Uh, I really appreciate all you do in this movement. And it's, it's really an honor to be on the show with you. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. The first story this week is from the Food Safe and Sound column by Mindy Brashears at meetingplace.com. And she's going to tell us, quote, the truth about line speeds. Uh, as you as you may be aware, I think we've mentioned it before, there's a recent ruling by a federal judge in Minnesota that limits the line speeds in pork, uh, as she puts it, pork harvest facilities. I wonder if they have harvest festivals. So they're pretty upset by this. There was a there was a lawsuit brought by uh, workers, and that's the one that so far has been successful, and also a lawsuit brought by animal rights activists. And it's about the dropping of any limits on line speeds in pork harvest facilities. And as Mindy says, one of the greatest attacks on our industry has occurred in recent days, and it has gone unnoticed by most people. It's subtle, with a long-term impact can be severely damaging to this industry, and the motives are insidious. Uh, she apparently seems to think this federal judge in Minnesota is is just out to kill the industry. I don't know. So, you know, she's uh, she's wor- worried about it. She's upset about it. And so, as she says, I am going to share the truth. Okay, Mindy. <laughs> That's a new one. But, uh, okay. First of all, line speeds exist for one reason. They were established by the FSIS, that's the Food Safety Inspection Service, for inspection only. And uh, she says that the speed that was set was related to how many birds or carcasses an inspector could inspect in a given amount of time. Uh, so, so what? <laughs> the fact that they were, they, they, whether they were or weren't invented just to um, uh, help out the inspectors, which I wouldn't be at all surprised that nobody ever cared about the workers or the, or the uh, animals. The fact is, is that they exist. They sort of exist. They've been phased out for a while. And, you know, speeding them up is causing a lot of harm to workers and animals. So, like, who cares why they were uh, why they were invented? And she points out that when the final pork rule was established, there was no line speed limit set. Because in pork production, the line speed was naturally limited by the facility and, the co- and cooler space. So, I guess what she's trying to say is that they didn't set a line speed... Uh, in the first place, because because they couldn't do it that fast. Well, they've gotten faster and faster and faster, and now they can do it really, really fast. And, you know, uh, the fact that workers may be harmed or animals may be harmed in the process. Well, of course, animals are harmed. It's just how much they're harmed. I guess, you know, because it didn't matter then, it doesn't matter now. I don't know. But I do like how upset she is. I really do. The impacts are serious, says Mindy. First of all, we will face pork availability issues. Hmm, not an issue for me. Secondly, we will have depopulation of thousands of live animals in the short term because there simply isn't a place for them to be processed. Well, this is probably true, and it's because the industry is so fucked up that they just have these 
thousands and thousands of animals waiting to go to slaughter. And they have no way, as we saw during COVID, they have no way to adjust other than to kill all the animals. That's their, that's their play. Uh, and a longer term uh, result is that, quote, farmers will be put out of work and production will be reduced because we will not have the capacity to harvest the animals. She just loves that word, harvest. Well, farmers may be put out of work if the pork industry uh, goes down, but they will quickly start growing something else, hopefully beans. Um, oh, she also says that plant workers will lose jobs. Well, you know, that's probably true. If we stop like having slaughterhouses, slaughterhouse workers will lose those jobs, which are really not the best jobs in the world. And maybe they'll go out and they'll um, work on farms that are growing, uh, let's say, beans. Oh, I like how upset they are about this. I can't say I have inside knowledge about what it's all about, but I do like to see them upset. That's always a good sign. Never mock a mock trial. Clever, right? That's the title of Sean Stevens' column this week, in, also at Meeting Place. It's the legally speaking column. He's a lawyer. And he points out that he's litigated and tried many foodborne illness cases throughout the United States. And they've mostly been civil matters. You know, like the plaintiff gets sick, uh, buy a defective food product, sue the manufacturer, recover damages. And as he points out, in each of those cases, the consequences for the defendant food company or its insurer involved only the amount of dollars that might have to be paid. Yeah. Implication here is like, eh, cost of doing business. But as he points out, imagine if the consequences were far more draconian, such as life in prison. <laughs> That is pretty draconian. In civil matters, only the defendant's dollars are at stake. In criminal matters, the defendant's lives are also on the line. I can't believe they are worried about this, but they but they are. And also a good sign. Apparently, the Department of Justice is uh, sniffing around looking for evidence of criminal wrongdoing. And though he has also um, told uh, folks when he's lectured on this uh, on this subject, the criminal liability can attach one if the food safety professional was aware of a circumstance that could lead to food production product contamination and make someone sick, or two that the person was in a position to eliminate the condition. I mean, and two that the person was in a position to eliminate the condition, and three he or she failed to do so. So that awareness he thinks is a big deal. But when he's done mock trials and put these kinds of scenarios in front of people, uh, you know, who, of somebody, an executive of a company that unknowingly produced food, I, I, you know, like, I don't know how much you have to not know. You can, knowledge can be imputed. So the fact that they can't prove that you actually knew isn't, well, anyway, I'm getting carried away. Unknowingly caused an outbreak and unknowingly made people sick. And he puts these, these scenarios, which he thinks should not result in criminal liability, according to current standards. And up to 60% of them vote to convict. And here's the, here's the Surprisingly, when the audience is composed of food safety professionals, after seeing the evidence and hearing the arguments from both sides, 60% of the quote unquote jurors vote to convict. What's going on here? Sean is, I don't know, he's apparently missing the boat on what other food safety professionals consider to be knowing uh, violations or criminal violations. Really interesting. And he's pretty worried about it. As he said, these exercises teach food safety professionals and food company executives what they should watch out for in their everyday decision making. 
and how their seemingly routine food safety decisions today could be used against them by the DOJ tomorrow. Wow. And he doesn't really tell them what it is they should be looking for. But apparently, they don't have to know as much as he used to think they had to know. You know, <laughs> it would be fun to see some of them go to prison. It really would. Oh, here's a somebody who, uh, well, I won't say that. Because I don't know whether he's knowingly done anything. We were talking about the CEO of meat giant Cargill speaks out on the cannibalization of protein by plant-based. I know that that headline is like, what? This is from Veggie which is a great uh, site. It's a vegan business magazine and uh, really interesting stuff going on there. But anyway, so they have this story about how this uh, David McLennan, who's the CEO of Cargill, and you don't get much bigger than Cargill. That's your JBS. He was speaking at the National Grain and Feed Association, and he was warning the folks there that the rise of plant-based will continue to reduce consumer demand for animal meat and that plant-based will, quote unquote, cannibalize U.S. and global meat demand. It is just a really odd choice of words, isn't it? Who are these people and and what what's going on in their subconsciousness? <laughs> but the, the real point of the story aside from the use of such an odd word, is that they're really, really worried. According to him, their analysis is that in three to four years, plant-based will be perhaps 10% of the market. 10% of the market, that's pretty good. And he goes on to say, we're a large beef producer and that is a big part of our portfolio. So there's some cannibalization that will occur. (laughs) What does he mean cannibalization? (laughs) I think that maybe what he means deep down inside is that, you know... Cargill may be getting a little bit out of out of beef and a little bit into plant-based. That's what I would do if I was CEO of Cargill. Good news. I'm, I'm, I'm ending this week's episode with some good news. Even the CEO of Cargill thinks they're screwed. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able... You can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course... Tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.